Good morning, Harvest. Hope you're doing well. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to Matthew 15 right now? We're going to be in Matthew 15 and 16 this morning. And while you're turning there, uh, just a couple quick announcements for you. Um, As you hopefully already know by now, we're really um, excited to to say that next week uh, we will be having live in-person services at both of our campuses at their normal times. So um, the signups actually for that are already live on our website. So maybe even after you're watching this service, if you you could go on our website and register your family. That would be super helpful for us. So that is live. You'll probably get an email about that later in the week, but just wanted you to know that you could sign up for that right now. Um, another word about the services that are starting next week. Um, we are planning on and hopeful that we will have childcare all the way through fifth grade at every one of our services. So as you're kind of planning what service to attend and, and how to help, that would be um, just helpful for you to know. And then also we would ask that you would volunteer and serve and maybe your family even attends a service and then helps serve to together as we kind of rebuild these teams and these ministries. But we're so excited for what um, is hopefully the last time um, we have to um, this week press pause on our live gatherings. And I hope you guys got a good night's sleep last night. I hope you guys got your coffee this morning because uh, this morning we're going to cover a lot. And uh, this morning we're going to look at one of the verses in the Bible that has been the most hotly debated and fought about and argued for and against. And we're going to look at a passage that's been very, very divisive within church history. And we're also going to look deeply into our own hearts this morning and talk about maybe some misconceptions we might be even caring about Jesus today. So here's the big idea that's going to kind of set the stage for where we're going. It's this. It's that many people in the ministry of Jesus, many people saw Jesus, but only a few saw him clearly. When Jesus was ministering on earth, he was very public. A lot of people knew who he was. A lot of people saw him. But if you actually do the math, the vast majority of people never saw him clearly. They never understood who he was and what his ministry was really all about. And if you're taking notes on our app, I've entitled this message, A Frustrating Season. Because we're going to see Jesus in a season of ministry where he is working really, really hard, doing a lot. And people don't be, they're just not understanding who he is and and what he's trying to accomplish. So so Jesus is going to be frustrated. And and, um, I think it's kind of fitting because I would say for a lot of us, it's been a season of frustration. And there's nothing worse than being misunderstood, right? Um, My son, Bo, he is in second grade. And uh, he's in a program at his school that's called Spanish Immersion. And and the goal of the program is when he goes to school all day, he's spoken to in Spanish and speaks in Spanish. And the plan is, is that when he graduates eighth grade or high school, whenever that is, not only will he have an education, but he'll be fluent in another language. It's a super cool program. And um, the the funny thing, though, is, is in second grade, Bo is fluent enough in Spanish to be able to speak it and to understand it but he's not fluent enough to translate it back to English yet. And that causes a lot of misunderstanding and frustration. So I'll go to Bo and I'll be like, hey Bo, how was school today? And he'll be like, oh, it was good. And I'm like, what, what'd you do? And I can see his mind work and he can explain to me what he did at school, but only in Spanish. And he knows I won't understand it. So he's like, oh, we did this thing. And I'm like, well, that's not helpful. You did a thing. And he's like, well, I don't know how to tell you, but, but, and he'll try to explain it and I won't understand it. And I'll just see Bo get frustrated. Like, man, I just, why are you asking me this? I had school. It was fine. Leave me alone. And we both kind of laugh about it. But there's not a lot more frustrating in life than being misunderstood, is there? 
Maybe it's you've had your intentions misunderstood and people believed the worst about you when that wasn't what you meant or people took something you said and ran with it in, in a way that wasn't true or, or maybe you just feel out of place and that can be frustrating. Well, the good news is if you're at a spot this morning where you're feeling any of those things, um, you can know that Jesus knows what that feels like and he felt that too in this passage. So again, if you have your Bibles, let's start at Matthew 15, 32. It says this, it says, then Jesus called his disciples and said to him, I have compassion on the crowd for they have been with me now for three days and have had nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we gonna get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, we have seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and the disciples gave it to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And then they took up the seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men beside women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got on a boat and went to the region of Magadan. All right, so Jesus, he's been working and it says he's got this crowd of people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And it said he'd been teaching them for three straight days, so much so that he was worried because they had nothing to eat that if they tried to leave, they, they would faint and could potentially even die or, or injure themselves. And um, here's what I want you to understand. Um, Jesus didn't have a microphone like I have. He didn't have technology that could amplify his voice. So when Jesus is teaching to a crowd of thousands of people, he has to amplify his voice in a way that would have been loud and exhausting. Um, scientists have done studies, and this has been told to me, that they kind of estimate that one hour of public speaking takes the same amount of adrenaline as eight hours of kind of normal work. So, so when you public speak, like all of your adrenal glands are kicking up on high alert and, and it takes a lot out of you. Well, Jesus has been doing this to thousands of people for three days. He would have been absolutely exhausted, yet his mind is on the people. And he said, I have compassion on them and, and I don't want them to hurt themselves and, and we need to feed them. So he takes some bread and some fish and he does a miracle and, and feeds this large gathering of people. But look what happens in Matthew 16, one. It says, and then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. And the first thing we see this morning, if you're taking notes, is we see a crowd that is fed, but still not satisfied, right? So immediately after feeding 4,000 people, Jesus is approached by Pharisees and Sadducees, and here's their question. Hey, Jesus, to prove that you're the son of God, we want to see you do a miracle. And you can see Jesus's frustration. He's like, where were you? Do you see all those people power napping there across the lake because their tummies are full? Like, I just did something pretty incredible. What more proof might you need? Why do you always want to see more signs? And it's interesting in Mark 6, you get the same story, but there's a little bit more color around it. Or in Mark 8, sorry. And in Mark 8, 12, 
It says this when Jesus replied to the Pharisees. It says, and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Do you see the frustration in Jesus there? He's like, I've been teaching. I've been doing miracles. I've had compassion on the people and enough is never going to be enough for these people. They just want more and more. He's frustrated. And then Jesus does something really interesting. Look at verse four. It says, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. And and so Jesus does this weird thing. He goes, you want a sign? I'm not going to give you any sign except the sign of Jonah. Now, now what is the sign of Jonah? What's he talking about? Well, do you remember the story of Jonah from the Old Testament? Jonah was a prophet who rebelled against God and he was thrown into the sea and he was swallowed by a fish for three days and three nights. And then he was um, regurgitated back onto the shore. And then he went and God used him to do amazing things in Nineveh. And what Jesus is referencing to, he's like, listen, there's a sign coming, but it's gonna be like Jonah. And Jesus is referencing when he would die and spend three days in the grave, but then would come forward again, which was a sign that the miracle of Jonah was pointing to. And and what he's saying is, he's like, you want a sign? You're not going to get anything except there's a day coming where I'm going to do a miracle that you're not going to be able to discount or run away from. I'm going to show you the sign of Jonah. I'm going to rise from the dead and you're not going to know what to do with yourselves. You're not going to be able to question who I am anymore. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you want a sign? Well, there's one coming and it's going to rock your world. But Jesus is clearly frustrated. All right, look at verse five. It says, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread, right? Well, well done, disciples. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves saying, we brought no bread. All right, here's the second thing we see. Now Jesus is going to have a frustrating conversation with his disciples. And it's actually quite funny. So the disciples, they've just spent hours gathering bread and feeding it to thousands of people. Then they get in the boat, they go to the other side of the sea and they get there and they're like, oh, all of those baskets that, of bread that were left over, maybe we should have thought about bringing that so we have some food. So they're kind of freaking out like that was dumb. Oh no, we don't have any bread. And Jesus says, listen, don't worry about bread. Be worried about the leaven of the Pharisees or the teaching of the Pharisees. Jesus is so frustrated about the conversations he's had with the Pharisees and Sadducees. But the disciples, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. They misunderstand him. They're like, why are you talking about leaven, Jesus? We already told you we don't have any bread. And now Jesus starts to get a little angry. Look at verse eight. But Jesus said, uh, but Jesus aware of this said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive Do you not yet remember the five loaves and the five thousands and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves and the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood he did not tell them beware of the leaven of bread, but beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Like, can you hear Jesus's frustration? He's like, you guys are with me all the time. You've seen me provide food for thousands of people. Like I can take care of our physical needs. Why are you worried about these things? And the disciples are like, oh, now I get it. But you can see in just how Jesus is talking. 
he's tired, he's frustrated, he's at his wit's end. Jesus is at a place where the people aren't understanding them, who he's ministering to, his enemies aren't understanding him, and even his closest friends and his disciples, they're just not getting it. Everyone around Jesus is misunderstanding him, and it's frustrating. And uh, as I've wrestled with this passage this week, I I think the Lord has placed on my heart, all right, what are some of the ways that this is true of us today? Because I think we're way more similar to the people in the New Testament than we would like to admit. And I think there's ways that we misunderstand what Jesus is doing or who God is all the time. And so what I want to do right now is kind of take a break and talk about three common misperceptions we have of God and of Jesus today. Here's the first misunderstanding. It's this, I think oftentimes we believe that God can be put in my debt, that God can be put in my debt. And and here's what I mean. I think if you look through the Old Testament and New Testament, there's this common thread and it's that when we follow God, when we um, make righteous decisions and righteous choices, blessing follows that. And when you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. And when you don't follow God, you often reap consequences of those decisions. In fact, Paul writes about this in Galatians 6, 7 through 9. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And this is something that is true in the Bible. And we've even taught, we've said things like blessing follows obedience and choose to sin, choose to suffer. Maybe an updated version of that, that I heard Pastor Nate say that made me laugh. It's when you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, right? Right? Like if you choose to make poor decisions, you're going to reap poor consequences. And and this is true in scripture, but the misunderstanding happens when we start to believe that if I follow God and if I go to church and if I'm just genuine enough in my love for Jesus, then everything in my life is going to go well because God owes that to me. And, And that everything will happen in my plan, in my way, on my timeline, and I'm never going to suffer. I'm never going to have to wait on the Lord and trust him because I'm doing the right things. It's almost like we're putting God in our debt. Hey, I'm going to scratch your back and do the right things, but you better have my back too, right? And the reality is, is we do live in a fallen and broken and sinful world. And even as followers of Jesus, we are not immune from the suffering and devastation that sin creates, And even um, though God is working all things together for our good and his glory, I think we need to live with the humility that God knows what's best for us even more than we do. And there are certain times that God's going to lead us into suffering like he did with Job because he is going to reveal certain things about himself and create an intimacy between us and the Lord that we will only ever have through suffering. Just because blessing follows obedience doesn't mean that that I can control God and make my life the way I want it to be if I just have enough faith. I just saw a pastor on Twitter this week write, if you expect it, you will experience it. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually kind of dangerous theology because it's not just about how much you want something or how much you expect something. 
You know, and I think oftentimes later on when we go through suffering, we see how God was indeed faithful to his promises. Like I think back about my life and my marriage and Mary and I's story and the miscarriages that we went through. Like looking back now 10 years on going through that with Mary, like I can clearly see that God has used that suffering to allow Mary to have really effective ministry with dozens and dozens of women at this church who have gone through a similar experience. So now 10 years on, I'm like, okay, that was hard and it was suffering, but God was accomplishing something in me and in my wife that we would not be the servants of the Lord that we are now if we didn't go through it. But I tell you what, in the moment, it just hurt. And it was just painful and it was just heartbreaking. And I would say even right now, we're going through a season as a church and as a country and as a world that's just difficult and it's hard and it's heartbreaking and it's frustrating. And I do believe with full confidence that in 10 years, 20 years from now, we're gonna be like, wow, look what God accomplished in that season that he wouldn't have been able to outside of having a worldwide pandemic. Right, but in the moment, it's just frustrating or it's just hurting or it just feels like suffering. And, and here's why this misconception is so dangerous because I've been doing ministry at this church now for over 10 years and um, I have had conversations with people and I have seen people walk away from the Lord. And, and here's what's been the same way this has played out almost every time. It's not been all of a sudden they read a book by an atheist and they didn't believe in God anymore. It's not that something happened mentally or or in their minds that changed. What happened was is that God wasn't moving in their time frame and in the way they want and they were going through suffering and they're like, all right, if I followed God and, and, and I'm trying to love him, but I'm experiencing suffering, maybe it's not worth it and maybe I'm just gonna give up. And maybe it was a relationship. Maybe they had a bad breakup or, or, or they weren't finding the spouse that they, they so desperately wanted to have or maybe they were in a marriage that was really, really broken. It's like, I just can't do it anymore. I, I'm out, I'm, I'm giving up. But there is this temptation in us when, when we face suffering, it's like, I just wanna give up. I just wanna throw in the towel. And you can see Paul pleading with his people in Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. God doesn't get to be in our debt. He is Lord, he's creator. He's our heavenly father. It's a promise that we can hold on to that we will reap if we do not give up, give up even in suffering. Here's the second misconception, and, and this one's huge, and I talk about it all the time, it's this. It's we believe that grace is not readily available that grace is not readily, readily available. And, and here's what I mean, hear me on this church. It is always wild to me how a people who define themselves as sinners saved by grace. Like, listen, even in your living room right now, if you're a sinner saved by grace, raise your hand. All right, you guys should all have your hands up right now. So we define ourselves as sinners saved by grace. It is wild to me how hesitant we are to actually receive grace when we sin. We say we're sinners saved by grace, but when we sin, how do we respond? Do we go to God and receive the grace that he promises to give us? No, we don't. We're way more like Adam and Eve and we wanna hide ourselves from God and we run from God and we wanna justify and blame others and, and try to create an alternate reality that makes us not the bad guy or, 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 or not the sinner. We, we try to justify, we try to hide, we try to run away. 
And I think that happens for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's just our prideful flesh. We hate admitting that we're wrong and we're broken and we're sinful. So even though we can identify it as like an out there thing, when it gets personal, we, we would way rather hide and act like Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and I think the other one is there's just a fault in our theology and we think that God only loves us and will give grace to us and give access to us when we have our stuff together. And when we're good and righteous and crushing it, then we'll pray because we've got nothing to confess. But when we're in a moment of weakness, we don't feel worthy to go to God. And that's where God would say, that's the whole point. And that's why I gave you Jesus, because I want you in my arms in this moment. The writer of Hebrews, when he talks about us praying, he he says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's interesting, he calls it the throne of grace, that when we go to God, all that is there for us is grace because Jesus has taken all of our sin. He has bore that upon himself and there is nothing left for God to give us other than grace. And he hears us and he loves us and he's patient and he's with us and he wants to walk with us in our weaknesses that he might be our solution to strengthen us. Yet in that moment when we are weak, we so often believe that grace is unavailable. Man, how much more joy, how how much less pain, how much less anxiety would be present in our lives if we got really, really good at running to Jesus, both in our victories and in our failures. If we truly believe that God's disposition for us does not change depending on our performance, our lives would be so much more full and so much more joyful. All right, and here's the third one. And this third one tends to be more seasonal, but I think it's worth addressing right now. And it's this. Um, The misconception we have is that we believe that we are already home, that we are already home. And here's what I'll say. You guys all know the events that happened at our Capitol uh, this week. And um, I'm 34 years old. So I will readily admit that... um, I'm not super old yet, and there are a lot of things that um, some of you have experienced long before I was alive that, that I've never experienced before. So maybe this isn't as bad as it's ever been, but I would say this, in my lifetime, I have never experienced the amount of anger, worry, frustration, and just being overwhelmed about what is happening politically in our country. It seems like things are coming to a head. I've never seen anything like it. And what breaks my heart is that I am seeing so many Christians get so wrapped up in and even lose themselves in the political currents right now. Philippians 3.20 says this. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, Paul says that we are citizens not of this world, but we're citizens of heaven. And that's where our hope should be. First Peter 2, 9 through 12 says this, but you are a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy Beloved, I urge you, listen to these words, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, 
Peter calls us sojourners, exiles, aliens. And, and, and here's what I would say, church, look at me. And, and I need to qualify this. I love America. I love our country. When the World Cup comes around, I cheer for America like my life depends on it. I'm thankful for our freedoms and our liberties. And I think God has been uniquely kind to our country in allowing the church to have a safe haven here. But church, you need to hear this. I think so often as Christians, we say, yeah, the world is not my home. Can I make it like a little bit more specific? America is not home. Heaven is. We are citizens of the kingdom of God and we have been sent here as exiles and missionaries to proclaim the hope of Jesus Christ. America is not home and church look here, America is not the hope of the world. The church is. Jesus in Matthew five says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So when Jesus came, he established this kingdom of God and this new citizenship of people who would not be marked by the world, but marked by citizens of heaven. And he says that we are the light of the world and it is our job to be lights in our communities and in our neighborhoods and with the people we live with and work with that we represent this new kingdom, this kingdom of God. You know, one of the things I love that our church has done so often and we hope to quickly again is we go on a lot of missions trips. And whether that be with our young people or on work trips to help different churches, like I love the fact that we send a lot of people on international missions trips. Here's why. Because it's so good for our hearts to go across the world or to go to a very different location with very different circumstances and to say, wow, there are people here who love Jesus and love the Lord and there is a communion and there is a um, relationship and there is a kindness and love that we have for one another, even though culturally we're so different. In fact, we're way more alike than the people we live next to because we have the most important thing in common and that is we love and worship Jesus Christ. Like how amazing is it that around the world right now, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation are worshiping Jesus. We are part of something that is so much bigger than our country. And it's good to expose ourselves to that. Um, just this week, I heard of a story of a church who is going through a church split right now, not over theology, not over false teaching, not, on, not over disqualifying acts in leadership, they're splitting over politics. You go on Facebook, you see friendships dissolving. You see people in churches fighting over politics. I've heard countless stories of families that can't talk to each other or can barely even be around each other because of political difference. And what breaks my heart is we are dividing over a place that isn't even our home. We are citizens of heaven and from that we await our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why this is good news. Because listen, and by the way, there's enough in here for a whole sermon that I can't preach right now, but someday I will. If you look at how God uses the nations in scripture, whether that be Assyria, whether that be Egypt, whether that be Israel, whether that be Rome, guess what God does? He uses the nations to accomplish his purposes for his people. 
So, so we can have a hope that whatever God's doing in our country and is as tumultuous and scary as it is right now, we can know with full confidence that he is going to use these things for our good and to accomplish his purposes. But I promise you, Jesus is way more concerned with the spiritual condition of his church and the light that we're being in the midst of our country than he is the spiritual trajectory of any nation. The hope of the world is the church. All right, look at verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others say Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? All right, so Jesus moves with his disciples into a new city and guess what happens? More people are misunderstanding him. He's like, who do people say that I am? Like, well, maybe you're a prophet or maybe you're Elijah or maybe you're John the Baptist, but everyone's confused about Jesus. And finally, Jesus just asks, who do you guys say that I am? And there's almost this moment in Jesus where he's like, does anyone understand? Does anyone get it? Can you guys even see it? Look at verse 16. It says, and Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Third thing we see this morning is a clarifying question and a perfect response. So, so Jesus is kind of just at his wit's end. And he's like, does anyone get it? And Peter has this incredible answer. And he's like, no, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. He nails it perfectly. And you can see Jesus get re-energized and encouraged. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So remember how at the beginning of the message, I said, we're gonna look at one of the verses that's been one of the most fought about verses in church history. Well, that's it. Jesus is like, Peter, you get it. And you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And in that verse, there has been tons of argument and debate. And here's why. Let me run through it really quickly. You see, there's a Catholic interpretation of this verse. And what the Catholic church has done is they use this verse as the foundation. And then along with church history, what they would say is, is that Jesus is establishing Peter as the first Pope in this passage. That he's saying, Peter, you are the Pope. And then along with tradition, they say Peter becomes the vicar of Christ, which is, means he is the infallible representation of Jesus once Jesus leaves. So Peter becomes the first Pope. He's the supreme leader of the entire church. And then every Pope that has come since Peter has been part of the succession from the line of Peter. So there is still an infallible representation of Jesus on earth today. And that's the Pope. And that comes from this verse. Okay, here's the problem with that interpretation. There's no biblical evidence to support it. The, the, the problem is, is Jesus never establishes one supreme leader of the church. And actually the New Testament goes out of its way to show that Peter was not perfect or infallible in his actions or his theology. Paul's got to call out Peter in front of everyone early on in the church because Peter's acting like a hypocrite and he's one way around the Jews and he's different around the Gentiles. So, so Peter was not a perfect man in any stretch of the imagination, but he got right who Jesus was. 
And now Protestants have interpreted that passage as kind of a response to the Catholic tradition. They've gone to the other side of the pendulum and they said, no, no, it has nothing to do with Peter. That Jesus isn't even referring to Peter when he says, on this rock, I will build my church. He's referring to what Peter said. It's not Peter who is the rock, but it's the statement that Jesus is Christ, son of the living God. So, so there's this big argument which one is is. One completely minimizes Peter and one elevates Peter to probably an improper level. Okay, so who's right? Well, the answer is neither is. Because here's what you see. Jesus is talking to Peter and about Peter, but not to establish him as a pope, but he's establishing him as a leader of the church based on the strength of his message. It's a both and, and here's what I mean. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, listen, uh, the, the movement of God is gonna start in Jerusalem, then it's gonna go to Samaria, and then it's gonna go to the ends of the earth. And guess what? Who was the first person to preach the gospel on Pentecost? Who preached the first sermon in the history of the church? It was Peter. And guess what Peter's message was? If you could boil down his whole message into one sentence, it's that Jesus is Christ, son of the living God. It's both Peter and the message. Later on in Acts 7 and 8, the first Samaritans are grafted in to to the church and guess who's there and guess who's a part of it? Peter is. And guess what the message that the Samaritans believe is? That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then in Acts 10, the first Gentiles come into the church. And guess who's a part of that process of opening up the church to the Gentiles? Peter's there. And guess what the message is that the Gentiles believe? That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter is present when the church goes to the Jews and then to Samaria and then to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. But it's based on the power of that message that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And what's so cool about that is we see Peter is a far from perfect man. But he gets it. And so often we rag on Peter because his failings are so public, but this is a very public success. He saw clearly who Jesus was. And as we close our time, I just want to focus back on that statement that Peter makes. In verse 16, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And here's three things Peter got in that moment that we need to get right right now. First, Peter is saying that Jesus is the savior. And when he says you are the Christ, what Peter is saying, he's like, listen, you're not a prophet. You're you're, you're not Elijah. You're not John the Baptist. You're not just a, a voice of God. You are the promised one. You are the Messiah. You are the one that has been sent to save the world. You see, Peter saw clearly who Jesus was, that he wasn't like anyone else who had come before in the history of Israel or the history of the world, but that he was the promised Messiah. The second thing that Peter shows us so clearly is that Jesus is Lord. Not only does he say he's the Messiah, but he says he's the son of the living God. And what that shows is, listen, you're eternal, Jesus but that you are not like me and my fellow disciples. You're not like anyone else, but you are God himself. And that makes you King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You are ruler over everyone. You are both Messiah and you are Lord. Like church, you understand we don't get to invite Jesus to be Lord over our lives. 
He is already Lord and there's nothing that we can do about that. Now we get to make the decision, are are, are we going to humble ourselves and allow him to have his way with us? Are we gonna get on board with what's already happening in reality? But we don't make Jesus anything. He is already Lord, he is in control. He is ruler over every nation. And then the third thing we see Peter understand is that only Jesus can satisfy our hope. And what Peter's doing is, is he is pledging his undying support to Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, you're all I have. You're it, you're everything. You are Christ and you are Lord and I am with you no matter what. In uh, John 6, verse 68, there's another story where Jesus is teaching and he's saying some difficult things and the crowds, they reject Jesus and they turn away. And Jesus in a moment of discouragement is like, are you guys gonna leave me too? And I love what, what Peter says in that moment. He goes, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that was always Peter's mindset. Like, Jesus, I've got nowhere else to go. You are the only one that can satisfy my hope. If I don't have you, I don't have anything. And and no amount of money or, or provision or status or power can satisfy the one thing that my heart longs for. And that is to know and be reconciled to my creator. He's saying, Jesus, that's you. And where you go, I'm gonna go. And what you tell me to do, I'm going to do with joy in my heart because only you can satisfy my hope. And so the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, is that same mentality true of us? Have we come to a place where we have acknowledged that Jesus is the son of God? That there is one person in human history that could pay for our sin and Jesus did it. That our only hope for forgiveness and salvation is through Jesus Christ. And then maybe even just as importantly, in a difficult season or in a difficult time, do you truly believe that only Jesus can satisfy your hope? Because if we're starting to reach on for our country or politics or health or safety, Those are anchors that will not stand the storms of life. But Jesus will. Is he our hope? Church, I pray that he is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for um, your word. Um, I'm thankful for the insight that you allow us to have into the heart of Jesus in in a season that's hard and frustrating. And um, we get to see Jesus be emotional and even exasperated. And yet we see even in those moments, he had compassion and he was loving and he was kind. What would you give us the ability to to follow that and model that well? And would we be a church that's ever anchored more closely to the hope we have in Jesus? God, thank you for the reality that we're gonna be able to get to meet again in person. That's something that we've been longing for for a long time. Um, Would you be with um, our country? Would you be with our leadership on every level, both in our country, in our state, and in our church? And uh, we love you. Uh, We need you now more than ever. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.